there was an article published in the Adventist Review some time ago, maybe 25 years ago or so, and it told a story about a woman who had been in a car accident, and as a result of that car accident, had some severe issues with her back and some significant back pain. And as time went on, as you can imagine, she tried just about everything. She went to every physician, every specialist that she knew of, yet day after day after day, long night after long night after long night, she continued to experience significant back pain. Well, some 20 years of this went by, and it was in a conversation with one of her neighbors that her neighbor invited her to one of her camp meetings. She's, she was at Pentecostal. She says, come to the camp meeting. There's going to be a healing service at our camp meeting. Well, I don't know. No, you really need to come. And so after some coaxing and some talking and so on, she decided she would go, and sure enough, she found herself there in the midst of this service, and the invitation was sent forth. If anybody has an issue that they'd like to, to be relieved from and to be healed from and so on, and her, her neighbor just really started nudging her, this is your chance, go ahead, go forward. So with some reluctance, this woman went forward, and they went through their little routine. Of, I don't know exactly what, what had happened, but as a result of the whole be healed process, Sure enough, the back felt better than it ever felt. In fact, for 20 years, she hasn't felt this good. And that night, for the first night, she slept soundly all through the night, didn't get up once. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, she said. Well, a little bit more time went on, and that, that following week, the pastor made a visit to her house, and they were conversing, and she was telling about her experience. And in that conversation, the pastor simply asked, are you sure that this healing is from the Lord? And so they continued to talk about that a little bit. And that night, this woman got down by her bed, on her knees, and prayed what she described was the hardest prayer she ever prayed. And at the core of her prayer was this idea, Lord, I want to believe that you healed me. But if this was not you, if you were not in this, I don't want anything to do with it. So she got up off her knees, she got into bed, and she fell asleep. And just a few hours later, the all-too-familiar back pain returned. So this morning, I simply want to ask you, can God perform miracles? Of course he can. Can the devil also perform miracles? Yes, he can. Turn with me in your Bible to a well-known verse in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning verse 10. As we're going to seek to answer three questions this morning, but I want to begin right here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. 
My Bible reads, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of who? The devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And the verse goes on to talk about this armor of of God. But there is this spiritual battle. Like it or not, we're in it. And so this morning, I want to do my best to simply look at three different questions, answering three different questions. The first, what is the purpose of miracles? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What's the purpose? What's the point? How come? Secondly, how will the devil use miracles to deceive people at end time? And thirdly, how can we tell the difference between true and false miracles, genuine or counterfeit? So those are the three questions I seek to to look at this morning, but let's begin with the first one. What is the purpose of miracles? What's the point? Well, if we were to take the the Gospels, for instance, some would simply say Jesus often performed great miracles to reward people's faith. Have you heard that one before? But the question is, did Jesus only heal on the basis of faith? And if faith is the sole criteria for healing, then what is the reverse or inverse of that? If I'm not healed of my cancer, is it because I don't have enough faith? Some people believe that. So let's suppose you're battling with cancer. And you pray for the Lord to take it away. And nothing seems to happen. And your friend comes alongside of you and says, You know, Dave, what your problem is? You don't have enough faith. So now I have two problems. I have cancer. I don't have enough faith. And so I try and work on my faith and everything else, but still nothing changes. And then I have another friend that comes along and says, you know, Dave, what your problem is, is that you have a known sin in your life that you haven't dealt with yet. Very helpful. Now I have three problems. I have cancer. I don't have enough faith. And now there's a known sin in my life that is hindering, that is impeding So if healing and miracles are grounded in faith alone, and if I am not healed because there is a sin in my life, then I have some real problems I have to wrestle with. Cancer being the minimal of all of them, wouldn't you say? And really that puts us right back to this idea in the Bible that if the Lord blesses, it's because you are right with God. And if bad things happen, it's because of your sinful lifestyle. But if we study the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, if you take all four Gospels and weed out all the duplicate miracles, are you with me? 
as well as recognize that there's a few isolated instances where Jesus goes and heals the whole town. But if you take out those isolated instances, there are only 24 separate miracles in all four gospel accounts. 24 separate miracles. I want to look at one of those with you. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And this is the story of the widow of Nain's son raised from the dead. Luke chapter 7. And we'll begin in verse 11. Luke 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that, he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Those are significant details. That's all she has to provide for her. Not only is she losing her son, but she's losing her livelihood, a place to stay, everything. And a large crowd from the city was with her. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Wouldn't that have been an amazing thing to witness? But my question to you is, who in this story has tremendous faith? Perhaps an obvious question, but did Jesus heal in this instance because of the great faith of the dead son? No, he's dead. Was it the mother's faith? We don't have any account of that. So to say, if you have enough faith, misses the point. The criteria here is Jesus' overwhelming what? Do you remember the term? Compassion. So what's the purpose of miracles? That's the question we're seeking to answer. And I'd say, number one, the purpose of miracles, the root of miracles is always God's love and compassion. And secondly, I would say, the result of miracles is always larger than the individual, but to give glory to God. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 of this passage Verse 16, then fear came upon all, and they glorified who? God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So the root of miracles is always God's love and compassion, and the results of miracles is always larger than the individual, but is about bringing glory to God. Does that make sense? But let's place yourself now in the time of Jesus. When Jesus came claiming to be the Son of God, where were his credentials? I mean, really? And could that have been part of the reason why Jesus healed at times 
entire villages. John 5, 36, Jesus says this in his own words, but I have a greater witness but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So the works that Jesus did bore witness of his divinity. When he touched the eyes of the blind and they were opened. When he touched the ears of the deaf and they were unstopped. When he touched the withered man's arm and it was healed. So the one thing we can never leave out is this. The context of miracles in the New Testament were a divine testimony of who Jesus was. To reveal that he was, in fact, the Son of God. John 10, 25 also says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness, again, of me. So what's the purpose of miracles? We're chipping away at it. The root of miracles is God's love and compassion, and the result is always larger than the individual, but to bring glory to God. Thirdly, to bear testimony that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be, the Son of God. But there's still a few more reasons. Do you remember the times Jesus worked a miracle, and after he said, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. And what did the Pharisees do? They criticized him. And Jesus would ask, which is more difficult, to raise this man up or to say his sins are forgiven? So I believe Jesus often used physical miracles to heal the body as a testimony that he could also heal the soul. Are you with me? He often used physical miracles of opening blind eyes as a testimony that he could open the eyes of the mind. He opened deaf ears to show that he could open the ears of the heart. So Jesus did not separate physical and spiritual healing. The Christ that could heal a withered hand could also heal a withered heart. So the root of God's miracles is always God's love and compassion. It's always larger than the individual, but to bring glory to God, to bear testimony that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, that he could, feel, that he could heal both physically and spiritually. And lastly, faith is not a sole criteria for miracles. Because at times, God honors a person's faith, but we see times where there's no faith, and God heals so to me, there is a bigger picture here. Because ultimately, faith is believing that God has my best interest at heart. Is it true? Turn with me to Hebrews 11. One of the things I love to do, I attempt to exercise while I listen to sermons. And if a sermon is good, I don't get any exercise. I just take notes. Sometimes it takes me four hours to do a 40-minute exercise. <clears throat> but as I was listening to a sermon of Mark Finley's, I, he was pointing out Hebrews chapter 11, something I've never seen before. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. But Hebrews chapter 11, we, we see this as the, 
the hall of faith, if you will, right? The great faith chapter begins verse 1 with kind of a definition here. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then we begin with the first individual listed, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testified by his gifts, and through it he being still dead, being dead still speaks. Through he being dead still speaks, excuse me. My question to you is, did Abel have faith? Well, he must have. He's here in the faith chapter, right? In fact, Abel had such good faith in what God told him to do and how to do it, it got him killed. In fact, if Abel had not had good faith, he would have lived. Is it true? But since Abel had faith, he died. Some say if you have great faith, you'll always be healed. But the first illustration in the Bible is a man who had great faith and died. Moving on to verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. Now I'm getting really confused here. Abel had great faith and he died. Enoch had great faith and he lived. We go on, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. Noah had faith and followed exactly what God said. He stayed in the same place and didn't leave his hometown for 120 years. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So Noah had faith and he stayed. Abraham had faith and he left. Abel had faith and he died. Enoch had faith and he lived. Now we're going to keep going, but I'm getting really confused here. Verse 11 says, By faith Sarah also received strength to conceive. Sarah had faith and she conceived. Did it take Sarah faith to conceive? She was 90 years old when she had this child. If you don't think that's faith, ask your great-great-grandmother. So Sarah had faith and received a child. But then in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So Sarah had faith and receives the child. Abraham has faith and offers up the same child. Abel has faith and he dies. Enoch has faith and he lives. Noah had faith and he stays. Abraham has faith and he goes. And as we keep going in verse 22, Joseph has faith and God sends him into Egypt to become a rich man. And in verse 23, Moses has faith and God leads him out of Egypt to become a poor man. So whose faith is greater, Joseph or Moses? Noah or Abraham? Abel or Enoch? And then in verse 34, it says that some people had faith and escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 34. And verse 37 in the same chapter talks about other people who had great faith and were slain with the sword. Wait a minute. 
What is faith? I believe this is where Hebrews 11 is coming from. Hebrews 11 gives us contrasting pictures to teach us that faith has nothing to do with what is happening all around us, but has everything to do with what is happening inside of you. Biblical faith is trusting God as a friend, well-known, that leads me to do whatever He asks me to do, regardless of the consequences. So living or dying is not the issue. Trusting and glorifying God is the issue. Staying like Noah in your hometown, never traveling to a mission field, but staying and building the ark where you are, is faith. But if God calls you like Abraham, you better not stay like Noah. Are you with me? So the first question we were trying to answer, what is the purpose of miracles? Can you remember the first one? God's love and compassion. It's always large to the individual, but to bring glory to who? God. To bear testimony of who God was, that he could heal both physically and spiritually. And lastly, faith is not the sole criteria for miracles. I believe that gives us a foundation for the purpose of miracles, even though we can study that into much greater depth. But the second question I want to look at this morning, how will the devil use miracles now and with greater intensity as we get closer to end times? Well, I believe the devil will use counterfeit miracles. In fact, we see it throughout Revelation. And I fear in getting into it too much for losing anybody. But do your best to stay with me. And even if you just get the big picture, that's okay. But why will the devil use counterfeit miracles? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, it's sensational. Secondly, it's experiential. It plays off of my senses. And it bears testimony to a supernatural power. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers. And so I believe one of the greatest deceptions of our time is placing our trust in our senses. What we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we feel... There's a movement, you may or may not be aware of it, called the Emerging Church, where they speak of moving into uncharted territory. There's several books. One's a Baptist book called Faith Undone. It's a real eye-opener. Another one with an Adventist author, um, The Omega Rebellion. But this Emerging Church describes itself this way. They like Jesus, but they don't really care for organized church. And they claim that learning has shifted away from logic and rationale and doctrine and scripture to the realm of experience and the mystical, where truth is found in the conversation between you and I. It's more philosophical, not so much, thus saith the Lord but rather centers on a human 
hunger for an experience. I want to experience the fullness of God. I want to know that I worship with Him. I want all of my senses to be tickled. One emerging church proponent writes this, a spiritual tsunami has hit postmodern culture. This wave will build without breaking for decades to come. The wave is this. People want to know God. They want less to know about God. Don't give me that doctrine stuff. As if that's not helping us know God. They want less to know about God or know about religion than to know God. People want to experience the beyond in the within. Sound a little fishy? Faith is not a matter of doing or even being, but an experience of becoming. Postmoderns want a God they can feel, taste, touch, hear, and smell, a full sensory immersion in the divine. Does that sound dangerous? Centered on emotion, on feeling? Claim the emerging churches that they can provide these kinds of experiences through things like contemplative or centering prayer, prayer labyrinths, non-biblical spiritual, discipline, di- spiritual disciplines or methods of spiritual formation, multi-sensory worship, incense, candles, making the sign of the cross, tasting the bread and the wine, touching different icons, and becoming anointed with oil. Thin places of oneness, as they describe it, in which through a repetition of a word, even through Scripture, and they pull out a word, and as they empty their mind, flag right there, empty their mind and just repeat this word over and over and over, they get this feeling of what they should do next. Folks, I can get a feeling to do whatever I want. Who's to say that it's right? Well, we don't really, you know, there is no thus saith the Lord. It's whatever you feel, it's whatever you experience. If I were to define the emerging church, I'd probably define it this way. It's a form of experiential worship that incorporates non-biblical, mystical, and new age practices, yet, and this is the scariest part, does it under the guise of Christian. If you want to do all that stuff and call it what it is, but if you're going to call it Christian, as one source claims, 20 million participants currently in the U.S. alone. 2005, Time Magazine called one of its popular leaders, Brian McLaren, one of the most influential evangelicals today. And if you think that we are exempt, the emerging church is greatly affecting all faiths of all denominations all across the country, including Adventist churches. Some are incorporating new things without a real understanding, I believe, of the subtle dangers and the catastrophic implications. And as always, the challenge with any counterfeit is that it always, always, always looks very similar, doesn't it? Or it's not a good counterfeit. We can have a prayer room that's wonderful. We can have a prayer room that's not so wonderful. And the devil wants to get it just as close as he can and weave that in. So under the guise of Christian, the devil is playing on people's senses and people are falling for it. Folks, the devil's not stupid. He masterfully calculates and plans and surmises 
as he patiently waits for the right time to spring his trap. So how will all of this heighten as we get closer to end time? I have far much more to cover than I have time for. Well, we're just going to hit it as fast as we can here. Hang on. Revelation, we find a false trinity. Just as there's a true trinity, there's a false trinity. There's a counterfeit. devil has a counterfeit for everything. And turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 13, where we find the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Beast being the beast from the sea, the false prophet, the beast from the earth. And the dragon, Satan, is the counterfeit of God. The beast from the sea is the counterfeit of Christ. Also, we refer to it as as the Antichrist. And we know the beast from the sea to be the papacy, who claims to be God on earth who claims they have the ability to forgive sin, all of these as a counterfeit to Jesus Christ, the genuine. And we can notice who gives the sea beast its power in Revelation 13, 2. It says, the dragon, Satan, gave him his power, throne, and great authority. What did Jesus say when he was here on the earth? Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Looks like a good counterfeit so far. So Jesus' authority comes from God. The sea beast's authority comes from dragon or, the Satan, or Satan. Yet another parable. The false trinity is a counterfeit of the true. In Revelation 13, 3, the beast receives a fatal wound. Now, a fatal wound is one that kills you, right? Now, if you are dead and you are healed, what do you call that? A resurrection. So the sea beast counterfeits the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, the sea beast exercises authority for 42 months, which is the equivalent of 1,260 days or three and a half years. Jesus' ministry lasted three and a half years. All kinds of parallels playing into all of this now. So you have the dragon, the counterfeit of God the Father. You have the sea beast, the counterfeit of God the Son. And the land beast, which would be the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. If you know prophecy, the land beast comes up out of this nation. So notice in Revelation 13, got so excited I didn't find it myself. Revelation 13, 12 and 13. I put some text in my notes and other ones I don't. This is the beast from the earth, the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. You may have missed all that other stuff. Don't worry about it. I'll come share it with you later. The counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 of chapter 13 of Revelation. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and caused the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast and whose deadly wound was healed. And he performs great signs. In King James it says miracles so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. One of the big things this false Holy Spirit does is perform signs and miracles, even calling fire down from heaven. Now, fire in Scripture represents the presence of God, and there's plenty of examples of that. It was the Holy Spirit who brought fire from heaven to earth to anoint the original disciples at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so what we have here is a counterfeit Holy Spirit bringing a counterfeit Pentecost and a great revival of sorts. And verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs or miracles which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. There is to be a great final worldwide deception in which the counterfeit trinity will stand in the place of God and the trump card that is played, miracles. Miracles. 
fire from heaven. That's the whole point. That's why we need to know the difference between the true and the false. Why God works miracles in the first place. And why would the devil try and counterfeit it? Calling fire from heaven. Because I believe the day will come when people will say, who cares about that little church over there who says and claims that they have the truth? We've got the power. We're giving sight to the blind. We're making the dumb speak. We're making the deaf hear. We're making the sick well. We're calling fire down from heaven. And we are united under one single day of worship. And experience almost overnight supersedes doctrine. text comes to mind, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. He never knew them when they were casting out demons in his name. He never knew them when they were doing many wonders and prophesying in his name, he never knew them? Apparently, just doing mystical practices in the name of the Lord doesn't mean the Lord is in it. Apparently, just doing prayer labyrinths in the name of the Lord doesn't mean the Lord is in it. Apparently, just healing and calling down fire and prophesying in the name of the Lord doesn't mean the Lord is in it. Great Controversy, page 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth. What is God's judgments upon the earth? Seven last plagues. And this says before. So this is before the close of probation. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. That's the latter range he's talking about that will be poured out. Not all at once, but gradually, I believe, is this crescendo as we get closer to the end. Continuing in the quote, the enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. What work? The latter reign that empowers God's church to give the loud cry. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work and before The time for such a movement shall come. He, Satan, will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. Just talked about a a true revival, counterfeit revival. In those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is being poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be a great religious interest multitudes will exult that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world, end quote. Does that get our attention just a little bit? And we see this idea again and again. Revelation 19.20 talks about how... Turn with me there. Revelation 19.20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, 
who worked signs or miracles in his presence. By which, important, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. By which, by what? By the signs, by the miracles. And he deceives. Revelation 16, verse 13. I like to hear the pages of your Bible turning. 16, verse 13. This is the infamous Armageddon passage found in the seven last plagues. And what leads to the famous last battle of Armageddon? Well, the world is falling apart. There's political and economic crisis. There's natural disasters. There's a move to bring religions together. Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Here again we have pictured this false trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And out of each of these comes a frog. What is a frog? Well, there's some strong parallels of the plagues of Revelation 16 here and the plagues that fell on Egypt. So why frogs mentioned at this point? I don't know for sure. Yet you may recall when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, Aaron threw down his rod and it turned into a snake. No problem, we can counterfeit that. And they did. Moses and Aaron, through God's power, turned the Nile into blood. No problem, we can counterfeit that. And they did. But take note, the plague of the frogs was the last thing Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate. And after that, they said, there's no way. We, we can't do it. This must be an act of God. Last great deception, the frogs. Maybe that's why they're mentioned. Last great deception in earth's history. Verse 13 through, through 16. Well, let's start verse 14. For they are spirits of demons, as false trinity, performing signs and miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. 15, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blesses he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, what is Armageddon? Scholars pretty much agree that this is probably a Hebrew-Greek word mixture, and it probably means mountain of Megiddo. Okay, so where's the mountain of Megiddo? Well, there isn't one. However, there is a city called Megiddo, and looming over the city of Megiddo is this huge mountain. It's Mount Carmel. So Carmel is the mountain of Megiddo, just like Mount Rainier is the mountain of what? Seattle. Just like Table Mountain is the mountain of Cape Town, if you will. And you may recall it was Mount Carmel that this great showdown took place between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, between the true God and true worship and false God and a false worship. And so this language here in Revelation 16 seems to say that the Mount Carmel experience will be repeated. Once again, there will be a showdown between the true God and the deceivious or devious counterfeit. But it will be different this time. Don't miss this. How at the end, we read earlier that fire would come down. Could it be it will come down on the wrong altar? 
Could it be on that day, all the physical evidence, all five senses will suggest that the counterfeit trinity is the true God? That this counterfeit worship is the true form of worship? And we today, we're being set up for this. Tantalize my senses. If I see it, I'll believe it. People say seeing is believing. And what will deceive seeing intellectual people? Miracles. Our senses will tell us this is amazing. This is spectacular. This must be God. But don't be deceived. He who has ears, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But we're calling fire down from heaven, they might say. Just as Elijah did to prove which God was true. We're healing people just as Jesus did to prove his divinity. We're speaking in tongues just like the apostles did to prove that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say when he was here? I have told you these things before it happens so that when it happens. Volume 2 of Selected Messages, page 53. Satan will work miracles. He will make people sick and, they, and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will then be regarded as healed. And this ought to stop us in our tracks. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. That's you and I. I saw it. I just know how sick they were. This was legit. This was for real. And now they're healed. It, it, it just must be. We've looked at the purpose of miracles. I've confused you probably on how the devil will use miracles now and with greater intensity as we get closer to end times. But we're going to move to number three. How can we know the difference? Because that's what it all comes down to, doesn't it? Because will Jesus be working miracles in the last days? Yes, he will. Will the devil be counterfeiting those miracles in the last days? Of course. So how can we know the difference? How can we not be wrapped up in this deception? Is there some construct that can be applied so we can tell the difference? There is. In genuine miracles, the focus is always on the glory of God. In counterfeit miracles, the focus is always on the exalted self. In genuine miracles, what happens for God's glory is more important than what happens for me. In counterfeit miracles, what happens to me is more important than what happens for God's glory. In genuine miracles, God knows best. In counterfeit miracles, I know best. In genuine miracles, it's God's will be done. In counterfeit miracles, it's my will be done. This is the mountain I want moved. So when I see the exalted self, when I see the I know best, when I see a faith healer saying, if only you have enough faith, you will be healed. Is that contrary to Scripture? You bet it is. Because in Scripture, sometimes you have faith, sometimes there's not faith. So it is not the faith that heals me, it's the power of God that heals me. It's trusting 
His glory, trusting His sovereignty, His omniscience, putting my life in His hands, not my own. So in this so-called faith-healing business, the will of the evangelist or the person superimposes the will of God. It makes the basic assumption that if you are sick, you are outside of God's will, which is a false assumption. Paul said, I prayed three times that this thorn would be removed. Thorn in the flesh. Probably bad eyesight. But was it removed? And what was God's response? My grace is sufficient for you. Last passage, and then we'll be done. James chapter 5, verse 14. Where we find a description of genuine healing. James 5, verse 14. And there we read, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Who's to do the calling? person that is sick. Call the elders and let them pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is not speaking of a public service, but a private service. Oil was used, if you recall, to consecrate the temple to God. Our bodies are God's temple. The priests were anointed with oil to be consecrated for God's sacred service. Where? Was it on the toe or was it on the hand? It's on the forehead. The frontal lobe where reasoning takes place. So to anoint with oil on the forehead is a full surrender and consecration to God. In the name of the Lord, which in Scripture is always associated with God's glory. So there is a willingness in my, to make a change, if need be, in my lifestyle. There is a willingness to do anything that God asks me to do. That's the anointing oil. That's the genuine healing. Counterfeit healing says just have enough faith and don't worry about changing anything. Counterfeit healing never emphasizes obedience to natural laws of health. It does not emphasize the need for change. Neither does it emphasize repentance. Neither does it emphasize a heartfelt on your knees crying out to God, asking if there's anything in your life that is coming between your soul and your Savior. So in counterfeit, it is praise God, pray, He'll work a miracle, but don't worry about the change in your heart, your bitterness, your anger, your resentment, your jealousy for the person sitting next to you. Don't worry about that. Just trust the miracle. Don't worry about changing your diet. Don't worry about changing your physical habits. But in genuine healing, I come before God. The anointing oil is placed on my forehead. I say, God, my body is your temple. God, whatever you want to do with it. If you want me to glorify you by being healed immediately, I praise you. If you want me to glorify you by being healed gradually, I praise you. And if you want me to glorify you in the resurrection, I praise you. It's saying, God, what do you want from me? What changes in the recesses of my mind? 
what changes in my heart, my attitudes, my affections, what changes in my lifestyle. Because, Lord, I want to be your temple. And if you see fit for your glory, through your compassion, you're going to heal me immediately, God, I praise you for that. But, Lord, I know if there is not immediate healing, you're going to give me strength and courage and hope so that I can glorify you in every aspect of my life. That's the contrast between genuine and counterfeit healing, between genuine and counterfeit miracles. And that's a hard prayer to pray because it goes against our hardened human nature because it goes against self and self-preservation, because it goes against our insatiable desire to live for the here and now. But Jesus says, let me in. Let me in. Let me change your heart, your mind, your attitudes. Let me take away your selfishness, your pride, your bitterness, your resentment, your anger, and let me fill you with peace and with joy, with love, with hope, with courage, with strength. Learn to trust in me today, Jesus invites us. So in the whirlwind of false doctrine blows, by Jesus' grace and the power of this word, you will be able to decipher between the genuine and the counterfeit. Because a long time ago, you put his word above your five senses. Because a long time ago, you learned to live for his glory and not for your glory. Because a long time ago, you learned to trust God and place his will over your own. Dear Heavenly Father, we have dealt with some heavy issues today. And it's easy for us to become fearful. And it is true that when we look at ourselves, we can't see how we can be saved. But when we look at Christ, we can't see how we can be lost. Lord, hold us in the palm of your hand. We can't do it ourselves, but by your Spirit, create within us that surrender to you. That in everything that happens to us, we'll be willing to submit to whatever it is that brings the most honor and glory to you, not self. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org